Welcome back to our series of Stories in the Gospels. In this series, we're looking at the various ways that Jesus taught. For example, sometimes Jesus taught through stories called parables, sometimes through proverbs, very, very short, wise sayings, sometimes through miracles, sometimes through direct teaching. And that leads us to what I'd like to talk about in this lesson is the most popular verse in the Bible. And this is one of direct teaching. Jesus simply stating the facts about reality. It is John 3.16. Sometimes I think John 3.16 is the official verse of all sporting events. As you can see on this picture, whether it's Major League Baseball or the NFL or college athletics, you will see signs at almost every sporting event citing John 3.16. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, I'm not sure how effective that will be with people that don't know the Bible because how are they gonna find out what John 3.16 says? Nevertheless, the idea is perhaps it engages our curiosity and we go to that verse, and when we read it, I think we find out why it's the most popular, in my opinion, verse in the Bible. People that are Christians, people that are not Christians, people through all time have understood and known that verse. So let's jump right in, and I wanna read the context of this. As we go into John chapter three, this verse is not just sitting out there in space all by itself. It's in the context of a discussion that Jesus is having with one of the leaders of the Jewish people. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, and a Pharisee are the strictest, most observant sect of the Jews at that time. His name was Nicodemus, and he was a ruler of the Jews. To say that he was a ruler could mean several things, but in this case, it means he was on the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Think of it like a cross between the Senate and the Supreme Court. It was the ruling body for all religious and civil issues in Judea. Now this man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs or miracles that you are doing unless God is with him. And Jesus responds in a pretty unusual way, but he says, truly I say to you, I tell you the truth, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus comes and acknowledges that you clearly have come from God and Jesus then moves beyond what Nicodemus is saying to the deeper questions of what are you here about? What is this kingdom of God and how does one enter into the kingdom of God? Well, you may remember the rest of this and if not, I'd urge you to read John chapter three. Nicodemus, of course, is puzzled by this and he gets into a dialogue with Jesus and Jesus humbles him and meaning Jesus says to him, I'm here to talk to you about things that are far beyond the little ticky dot issues of the law and the little rules that you have. I wanna pull you back from that and remind you of the great purpose of God in the world. 
And that leads us to verse 16, where you read this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, I read three verses together, and the verse 16 is probably the most famous, but I don't think you can really understand what's being said here without looking at those three verses together. And here's what I mean by that. Basically, this passage talks about the current, it's a summary of salvation. It gives the reason for salvation, it gives the cost of solving that problem, and it gives the ultimate solution. In these three verses, or really three sentences, we make them into verses, they were spoken, those three sentences really explain the idea. Early on in the gospel, John wants us to understand what is this message of salvation or rescue or the kingdom of God coming to reclaim the earth. And this passage talks about the problem, the, the solution to that problem, and the cost of that solution. And so I'd like to dive into this just a little bit and take these three verse by verse. And I wanna highlight some ideas and unpack, if you will, this most famous of verses. The first is verse 16. For God so loved the world, or loved the world in such a way, is probably a little better way to think about it. Let me, he's it's basically saying, let me explain to you how God showed his love for the world. God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This verse carries inside it multiple ideas. And the first one I wanna talk about is the idea of the problem. You see, this word perish is a harsh and a strong word, but you could stop this verse. If you just wanted to feel good, you would stop this verse or you would change it to say, God loved you so much he sent his only son and he wants to spend eternity with you. Wow, that's nice. That's a feel good verse without a doubt but it doesn't encompass the idea of salvation. You see that verse, God loved you so much he sent his only son and wants to spend forever with you. That is a solution looking for a problem. And what I mean by that is that's one of those nice sayings that you say to somebody and you go, wow, that's really nice. If I ever need that, I will be sure to call on you. In other words, I have no motivation toward that. I have no sense of there being something wrong. I don't need God's love. I appreciate the sentiment. It's sort of like somebody saying, I'll pray for you. If they do, that's a powerful thing. But saying it is, in and of itself, is just a kindness. It's a nice thing to say. And I would urge us as Christians that if we say we're gonna pray for someone, let's actually do it. So without the action behind it, without the need, this, that statement, that good news, that gospel, 
And a lot of us turn the gospel into that. Our world turns the gospel into that, is God loves us and he sent his son for us and he wants good for us and he wants good things to happen to us. That's kind of what I call a therapeutic version of the gospel. And that's just sort of a, whoa, when I don't feel good, I'm gonna take a little dose of that. That's a gospel with no power because I don't think there's a problem to be solved. John 3.16 thinks there is a crucial problem to be solved. Whoever believes in him should not perish. What's he implying? He's implying that without the intervention of God, you and I will perish. And in fact, this is a, an obvious teaching of the scriptures. I've just picked a handful of uh, verses here on this slide. But Jesus, when he began to preach, what was he saying? When he, when he went from village to village, what was he saying? I think it's worth remembering. It's not that he isn't gonna tell you that God loves you, but what's his core message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What is that basically saying? You don't go to someone and say, change your mind, which is what repent means change your life, change your direction. That statement implies that there's something wrong with where you are. There's something wrong with where you're going. Jesus came to call the world to a different direction. Why? Because things were going really well and they might just go better with Jesus? Of course not. You can't read these scriptures any other way than to say God loved a people who were destined to perish. He said, repent, because the kingdom of God is here. Romans, the wrath of God, this is the beginning of the gospel. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Think of that as rebellion against God, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We all have turned away from the truth. Here's another passage plucked out of Ephesians, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, our self-centeredness, our desires for fame, fortune, power, focus on us, pride, all those things wrapped up in this passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's the uniform message? The univocal voice of scripture is that we have a problem we cannot solve. Sin, rebellion against God, living for the passions of the flesh, self-absorption, however you wanna think about this, whatever synonym we might put on this, we have a problem. Without that, there is no good news. Without that realization, John 3.16 is just a bromide. It's just another nice saying that maybe perks your day up a little bit. Kind of like those little yellow happy face stickers that said, have a nice day. Did anybody ever actually think that was going to make a difference? No, but why did people plaster those things everywhere? Simply the desire for things to go well for you. Not that things aren't going well for you, but just that things would go well for you. Well, that's not what the gospel is. And so the essence of the gospel is this idea that we have a problem we cannot solve. Second step, 
God is going to intervene to solve that problem. And the second thing that you get out of this is the cost. For God so loved the world, or God, really, think of it this way. God loved the world in this way. And what way did he love it? Well, what kind of world was it? It was a world that was perishing. It's filled with creatures that he created in his image who are perishing. In what way did he love this world? He gave his one and only son. He gave his one and only son, his precious son. That word one and only, uh, sometimes translated only, that Greek word could mean two ideas, both of which express the uniqueness of the Son of God. One is only begotten, his one and only Son, or probably in my view, more likely, is his one of a kind Son, his unique Son, his only Son. And you can see this translation kind of tries to capture both of those in saying his only Son, but it sometimes misses the, the magnitude of this sacrifice. Let me take you back to a passage that's meant to foreshadow this. So 2,000 years before Jesus is born, crucified, risen from the dead, a man named Abraham, back in Genesis 22, believes God and begins to follow God. And there's this really enigmatic passage, this really curious passage. And I won't go into all the details of this, but I do want us to take one obvious thing out of this. There are a lot of things in this passage that are difficult to understand. This part's not. God spoke to Abraham and he said, take your son, your only son, the son that you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as an offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Well, let me tell you the rest of the story before I come back to this. So Abraham takes his son, Isaac, and he takes a three-day journey and he comes to this hill called Moriah. And he goes up on the hill and there's a rock there. And so he's laid on the rock and Abraham begins to sacrifice him and an angel intervenes and says, Abraham, I know that you trust me and here is a sacrifice in lieu of your son. So Abraham doesn't kill his son. Abraham sacrifices a ram. And the place where that happened, by the way, that rock on which he was uh, willing to sacrifice his son, Mount Moriah, is in Jerusalem. And that mountain today has a temple mount on top of it, has a big, flat uh, bunch of retaining walls. We call it the Temple Mount. Herod the Great built it. Big, flat thing. And underneath it, there is the top of this Mount Moriah. And on the top of this Mount Moriah, there's a stone where the Jews believe this happened. Now, when Solomon built his temple, he built his temple right on that spot, on that stone, and that stone was in the Holy of Holies. Today, when you go to the Temple Mount, of course, Solomon's temple is gone, Herod's temple is gone, and over time, the Temple Mount is still there, but there's a mosque there now. It's called the Dome of the Rock. And you guessed it, it is built right over that rock. That's where this happened, that's what happened, but what does it mean? And so in the Old Testament, you get a God whose intention is not to have Abraham sacrifice his son, but to foreshadow what it would take 
to make humanity righteous. And so you, you see this foreshadowing of the cost. Take your son, your only son, the one that you love. And that's packed into John 3, 16, when it says God gave his only son, the son that he loved, his only son, Jesus the Christ. Also in Romans 8, 32, to get a sense of the magnitude of this, here's how Paul understands it. He said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us on our behalf, how will he not also graciously give us all things. In other words, he's really emphasizing, first of all, the magnitude of the cost is, if God is willing to give his own son to solve this problem, then what would he withhold from us? Now all of a sudden, think about what this says. It does two things. It tells you the magnitude of the problem that we have. This idea of being living in rebellion to God, being in sin, and secondly, it gives you a sense of the magnitude of God's love. It's easy to read this verse because it's so familiar, but I really want us to step back and go, wow, I have a problem that is greater than I could ever solve on my own, and I am doomed, justifiably doomed. God's righteous anger at us and yet the magnitude of God's love is such that he would give his only son so that we would not perish. This verse is beloved for one reason, when you read it with fresh eyes, the magnitude of God's sacrifice is overwhelming. And then something we don't talk about as much, you have the magnitude of the problem that we are destined to perish, the magnitude of God's love in that he gave his only son. And then can you imagine the magnitude of the solution of eternal life? And I know that's probably the hardest thing of this for us to imagine as we think through what could it be like to live forever with God. But I would simply leave it at this and say, if the problem is that huge and the solution is that serious, then how much greater and how beautiful will heaven actually be? And we call heaven that eternal life with God. Well, the next verse is very interesting. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever trusts in him, and I'm gonna translate the Greek word that's often translated believe as trust. It means belief, trust, have faith, all the same word. Trust conveys a better idea. Belief in English, it's just a word that doesn't have very much potency to it. You can believe strongly, you can believe lightly, but trust is a potent word for us. And that's what this is saying, that whoever places their trust in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Then it goes on and says this, because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now that's interesting because God's prerogative would be to send his son into the world to condemn the world. We deserve condemnation. We stand in a state where we are in rebellion against God. Therefore, condemnation would not have been beyond the pale. It would have been a reasonable thing to do. Nevertheless, God chose not to send his son to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. 
that we might be saved through him. Jesus said it this way. There's a passage in Isaiah 61, and you're gonna remember that Jesus quoted this. And it says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is Isaiah 700 years before Jesus. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that verse goes on to say, and the day of vengeance or judgment of our God. Now, that verse will be accomplished. God's justice will be done in the form of judgment. God's justice must be done. But God chose not to judge or condemn the world. At this point, he chose to send his son that the world might be saved through him. When you read the book of Revelation, when you look at the New Testament, you realize a day of accounting is coming. A day of accounting is coming and it must come. A just God must do right in the world. Second Peter, the letter that Peter wrote to Christians around the 60s AD says this, do not consider God's delay of judgment to be because it won't come, but consider God's patience wanting as many to be saved through Christ as possible. In John chapter 10, later in this book, Jesus will say, I have many sheep, not just the Jews, many sheep, all ethnicities, and not just in the first century, through time. And they must be gathered into the flock. And so God has a purpose of salvation, but judgment will come. But God did not send his son to judge the world, to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And then verse 18, whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in Christ is not condemned, but whoever does not trust in Christ is already condemned. What an interesting statement. Because he has not placed his trust in the name of the only son of God. This is a fascinating verse. And I want to spend just a little bit of time on this. So you get the idea that we have a problem that God loved the world in such a way that he made it possible for us to be reconciled, for us to avoid perishing by giving his one and only son. So God does that. And if I place my trust in him, then I have eternal life. And if I don't, then I stand condemned because the world's not neutral, is it? Sometimes we have this feeling of, well, God's, you know, we were just born and we live our lives and we're basically good. And now we got this God that wants to nitpick the little things that we did wrong and who knows how it's gonna go. That's not even slightly the view that the Bible takes of the world. I understand it's a very culturally popular view to take the idea that people are born as a blank slate, if you will, and life writes things on the slate. That's not a biblical point of view. And in fact, no one who's really looking in the mirror honestly is gonna accept that because we know that we have sinned. We've sinned by our own standards, let alone God's standards. That's Romans chapter one through three, is we don't even live up to our own standards. So the point is, is that our rejection of Christ is a self-condemnation. I want to illustrate it this way. I hope this is an effective way to illustrate it. So I'm showing you a picture of the Mona Lisa, widely regarded throughout time as just a masterpiece of painting. 
for a variety of reasons, not just the technique of the painting, even though that's well done as far as technique, but simply looking at that picture, people have seen so much in it. And yet, when someone looks at that picture, they may say that is a masterpiece. Someone can look at that picture and go, most boring picture I've ever seen ever. My five-year-old could have done that. I mean, not this picture, but you've certainly seen some famous art where you might say that. So here's my point. What, what is that telling us? And I wanna relate this to John 3.18. The picture is what it is. What do I mean by that is the painting is what it is. It's painted with a certain technique. It's intending to convey something. But when I say I like it, what am I saying? I'm telling you something about myself. I'm not really telling you something about the picture because the person next to me might say, I don't like it. So what does that tell you about the picture? Actually, it doesn't tell you anything new about the picture. The picture is what it is. What it tells you is something about me, something about the observer. Kostenberger, a commentator on the Gospel of John, says this, not believing in the God-sent Son is tantamount to self-condemnation. God is not to blame, but rather the unbeliever. Human remain, humans remain responsible agents. No one is compelled to believe. What's he really trying to get at there? I think what that's really saying, and I think a good way to understand it is, when we confront Jesus, the way we react to him doesn't really say much about Jesus. He is who he was. He did what he said he would do. The evidence is pretty clear. What it says is something about me, how I react to that. If I happen to say, look, I'm a pretty good guy and I'm kind of offended that Jesus said, I need to repent. I need to change my way. I find Jesus offensive and I don't want any part of him. Am I telling you something about Jesus? I'm telling you my reaction to what he says because of what's inside me. Another person might come to Christ and say, you know, just like, if you think about it, one of the greatest statements ever is, you know, the song Amazing Grace. You remember Wilberforce and at the end of his life, he's a slave trader, comes to Christ, writes this song Amazing Grace, you know, it's amazing what God has done for me. And he says at the end of his life, you know, two things I know, how great a sinner I am and how great a savior Jesus is. Now, what's his reaction to Jesus? His reaction is, you've told me the truth and I know the truth. I'm not good. I am in rebellion and I long for reconciliation. And Jesus is the one that made it possible. Two different reactions to the same savior saying the same things. And so this idea of our reaction, as John 3.18 is gonna say, really says more about us and where we are than it does about Christ. So this passage is beautiful in the sense that it gives the totality of salvation. It talks about a problem. If you reject the problem, you will reject the savior. You might accept it in some sentimentalist kind of way, but you really are not gonna have roots if you really don't understand the depth of human depravity. All Orthodox theologies understand this idea of human depravity. Do I mean by that that we never do anything good? No, human depravity means is that we stand in rebellion with God and we have no ability on our own to reconcile. 
That's what human depravity means. We have this problem. God loved the world in this particularly effective way and in this particularly huge amount that he gave his one and only son that we wouldn't pay the penalty for that, but we could be with him for eternity. Powerful verses. But then it goes on, and I wanna finish with verses 19 through 21, because honestly, this, this John 3.16 is really John 3.16 through 21, this little thought issue. And he goes on and he says, I'm gonna tell you why this was necessary. I'm gonna tell you what the issue of, is with this. He says, and this is the judgment. Remember he just said, those who don't believe stand self-condemned. They have condemned themselves but in that they have not trusted in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. Remember this, the Gospel of John starts out in John 1 about Jesus is the light coming into the world, but here's the verdict. People have loved the darkness more than the light. And so the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, everyone who practices that lifestyle, that and when the Bible talks about wicked things, I want you to think less transactional, although that's certainly true. I want you to think more. All those who practice self-absorption, pride, greed, anger, hatred, gossip, jealousy, all the things the New Testament talks about, a heart that is filled with these things. That's what it means when it says practices wicked things. Hates the light, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest we have to face the works. We have to look into our own hearts. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is one of the more powerful pieces of John 3.16 passage. It explains the nature of the human heart and explains our emotion. And I wanna tell you a little story um, that captures this, I think, as well as anything. Uh, the verse itself is pretty clear. Those who practice these things, whose hearts are filled with these things, do not want to come to the light, but we want to stay in the darkness. But those who love the truth, Jesus said, come into the light. And God so loved the world that his only son can make you whole. There was a novel written in uh, 1890, 1891 by Oscar Wilde. And you may have different opinions of Oscar Wilde, one of the most witty guys that ever lived. A troubled soul, no doubt. Nevertheless, I wanna focus on this story. He wrote a story called The Picture of Dorian Gray. And in that little novella, he was trying to highlight a number of themes, but there's one central issue that comes out of this parable that is exactly John 3, 16 through 21. And let me just tell you the story, a spoiler alert, okay? I'm gonna tell you the story of this. Once there was a young man named Dorian Gray. He was a handsome young man, a beautiful young man, people might say. And one day he was having his portrait, which I've put up here for you, he was having his portrait made by a painter. And the painter brilliantly captured his beauty and captured his innocence and his timeless uh, good looks and beauty. But in time, Dorian Gray fell under the influence of other people who basically said to him, the point in life is hedonism. 
is to enjoy yourself. And so he was so drawn to the life of pleasure that he wished there were some way that he would never age and that the effects of this debauchery and this self-centered lifestyle might not affect him. Now, that's not unusual. You and I all know that a lot of the things the world says are going to make you happy tend to have really negative impacts on your body. And so he said, I would like for that not to happen. And so he made a bargain that he would live and retain his youth and his beauty for the rest of his life. And none of the things that he pursued would ever show a mark on him. Instead, they would be reflected in this painting that the young painter had made of him. And so he begins to go about his life and the painting hangs in his home. And the story tells a number of things, but one, for example, is he uh, falls in love with a young woman and decides he desires her greatly. And he leads her along and she falls in love with him. But then his friends say, she's not worthy of you. And so he spurns her. And so he goes home that day and he looks and when he sees the painting, all of a sudden he sees a sneer of superiority and a little meanness or hardness in the face that wasn't there before. And he was convicted just a little bit and he thought that wasn't kind, that wasn't right. But alas, when he went back to find the woman, she had killed herself in her misery and her shame for being used and abused by him and cast aside. Well, at that point, he took the, the picture, the painting, and he put it in the closet and he shut the door and he began to double down and live his life seeking pleasure, seeking self-gratification and self-absorption. And through the years, he lived this way. Until one day, the young painter, who was a devout young man years later, had heard of Dorian Gray's lifestyle. And so he came to see Dorian. And he was amazed to see that Dorian looked as young and fresh and beautiful as he had so many years before. And as they began to talk and the young painter expressed his concern for Dorian, his concern for his soul, if you will, Dorian brings out the painting and they're both aghast. The painter looks at it, he recognizes nothing on this painting except his own signature and he turns in disgust at Dorian Gray, who is overwhelmed with his own sense of guilt, and he takes a knife and he kills the painter. He puts the painting back in the closet and moves forward with his life and shuts it off into the darkness of the closet and in the depths of his mind, and he begins to live and continues to live this self-absorbed lifestyle. Until one day, as he is an old man, he doesn't look like an old man. He looks as young as he was when the painting was made. And when he is weary in his soul, even though his body has all the vitality that it ever had. And one day he opens the closet and he takes out the painting and he looks and he sees in this painting what his heart actually looks like. And he's so aghast and he's so disgusted with that, that he takes the knife that he had used to kill the young painter and he stabs the painting intending to rip it into pieces. And the story says the servants in the middle of that night heard a scream 
And when they got up, they went to the room and they burst through the door and there lying on the floor is a hideous, unrecognizable old man with a knife in his heart and a painting perfectly together of a young, beautiful Dorian Gray. That story captures the essence, if you will, of what John 3, 16 to 21 is trying to say is, and this is the judgment, that the light came into the world, but the world loved the darkness rather than the light. It's a rare individual who is brave enough to look into the mirror of their own soul, to look into the mirror of their heart. And the Bible says what you see there will break your heart. What you see there has broken your creator's heart. And yet, and yet, God so loved you, God so loved the world that he gave his beautiful one and only son that whoever turns to him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever turns to him will be washed clean in the blood of the lamb. That's what John 3.16 is really about. And John 3.16 isn't just a declaration of the truth of humanity, the truth of God's love, the truth of the sacrifice. It's a question. And it says, are you brave enough to look into your own heart? And once you do, will you accept what Jesus Christ has to offer? Eternal life. I leave you with that question and my prayer and my hope is that the answer to that question is yes. I want to know this Jesus Christ. I want to be washed clean. I want to be reconciled. I want to be free from the things in this life that enslave me, the things in my own heart that enslave me, my pride, my lust, my self-centeredness. I want all of those things to be washed away and then I want to follow Christ. In our next lesson, I wanna take the next step and I wanna talk about what does it take to follow Christ. I hope you'll be with us next time, thank you.